You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles now. And our first reading is from 1 Samuel 26. And this chapter is read as one possible background to Psalm 11, the time of 1 Samuel 26 is when David is not yet the king, Saul is the king, and Saul knows that David is supposed to be the next king, but he doesn't want David to be the king. He wants his son Jonathan to be the next king, so he is chasing David to take his life. 1 Samuel 26. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakalah facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the desert. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, Who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I will go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Vishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? 
David replied, Yes, it is, my lord the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord the king listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, men have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, Go, serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son. Because you considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way, and Saul returned home. Now let's turn to Psalm 11 for the director of music of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed... What can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, His soul hates. On the wicked He will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see His face. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, His congregation and flock, Psalm 11 is a psalm of David. And the way it speaks reminds us of David. David was called a man after God's own heart. That was in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. And If you see where he's called a man after God's own heart in the context, it means that he's a man who follows what God loves and does what God wants in contrast to Saul who couldn't wait for God's appointed high priest and offered a sacrifice himself and did things his own way. David thinks much more spiritually than Saul ever did. So he's a man after God's own heart. David is, of course, known as a fierce and great military leader. And actually, Saul was a good military leader uh, for much of his reign as well. But David was even more a spiritual leader among God's people. And far more than uh, Saul ever was, clearly. 
And the Psalms, those songs that have been committed to the church of all ages, show us the heart of David, and they show us then, in a reflective way, also the heart of God. Since David is a man after God's own heart, and since these are inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is also God's Word, God speaking through David. And one of the things that God moves David towards time and again is when he is in the midst of physical difficulties, he turns to the Lord for strength. That's his solution to the problems around him. It's his solution when people around him despair, when they are timid, when they grow cynical, when they say nothing's going to work out. He says, hold on a minute, we're people of faith. Turn back to the Lord and recommit to the firm foundation of who the Lord reveals Himself to be, how He's made this world, and how He is going to maintain it to the end, and there will be a day of judgment. And that's what Psalm 11 is doing. David is bringing here a message for us as well, that we should not let the circumstances around us lead us to despair. We shouldn't allow those who are too timid, who are uncertain, who are despairing, who are even cynical. We shouldn't allow them to cause us to lose heart. We are determined to do the will of God, and it mustn't be shaken. And so here in the psalm, David won't hear of running, hiding. He puts his confidence in God up front, and that gives him strength. So let's also gain strength from this, brothers and sisters, chosen to explain the psalm under this theme, God's faithful children should not be deterred by cynical brethren. God's faithful children should not be deterred by cynical brethren. So we'll first see the problem highlighted by the cynical and then the solution relied upon by the faithful. And this problem highlighted by the cynical is the verses 1 to 3 and the solution that's relied upon by the faithful is the verses 4 to seven. And if you look then at this psalm, David is speaking, I take refuge means I, David. So in the Lord I take refuge. That's sort of the um, leading motif of the psalm. That's the lead in. And then everything else is going to fall under that. And then he reports what other people are saying to him. And he, he repeats it back to them. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. How then can you, speaking to the people around him, say to me, and then he quotes or paraphrases the things that they've been saying, flee like a bird to your mountain. Um, look, the wicked are bending their bow to shoot from the shadows of the upright and heart, and the foundations are being destroyed. What can you do? You have to just flee. That's verses 1 to 3. That's the problem highlighted by the cynical. You can't avoid the problem. And then the solution that is relied upon by the faithful, is what David gives in response to them. So we see this as David speaking, and in the first part he's reporting what they say back to them. Now let's look at who these people are. David says, how can you say to me, who are the you? Well, we don't know exactly what the situation was when this psalm was written. It's written then in a general way that can benefit us at many different times in life. But the you, one of the questions we could ask is, 
are these believers or are these unbelievers? And here's how they, they speak. They're, they seem to be thinking of David's well-being, and they say, if you're here, you won't survive, so you better flee. And here's why, and they lay out why. And the way they speak shows that they, in their minds, contrast the wicked and the righteous. They say the wicked are there ready to, ready to shoot the upright in heart. Um, so they don't just think of people who are out, you know, do good on the outside, but they're even upright in heart. The people who are saying this to David are concerned, and so they say when the foundations are being destroyed, this matters to them. What can the righteous do? So the people who are being cynical are really fellow believers. There are people who believe in the Lord, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, that the upright should be upright in heart, that there are foundations, they shouldn't be destroyed, but when they are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? So, these are brethren. They're not speaking sarcastically, but with genuine concern. And what are they saying? Well, flee like a bird. Go quickly, go quietly, and go far. And then they give him reasons why. The wicked bend their bows. First reason, they've, and not only that, they, if, their do, if their bows are bent, then they must have the arrows in them, so they've knocked their arrows. And all they have to do is release their two fingers, and off goes the arrow flying. And it's not just that their bows are bent, but they're in the shadows. You could walk along and you wouldn't even see them, and suddenly the arrow is flying and you can't get out of the way. And not only that, but they are aiming at you. That's why David has to run away. They're aiming at the upright in heart, and David strives to be upright in heart, so he should run away before the arrows overtake him. And the last reason they give is the foundations are being destroyed. So, you could think of this in battle terms that David's scouts have gone out and they've just like um, David sent some scouts out in 1 Samuel 26 and saw that Saul was coming. So David sends some scouts out and they skirt around and they go behind the enemy camp and they can see from that perspective, from that angle, that there are people hiding in the shadows with drawn bows. So they come back and they say to David's advisors, here's the situation. 10 o'clock and 11 and over at 1 o'clock and 2 o'clock in the east and the west and everywhere there are all these archers ready to shoot. Run away. Take off. There's nothing you can do. Now, we've described it that way and David can speak that way and be understood by those around him very well because he's a man of war. But David is not simply speaking about physical arrows and actually getting shot in the heart that pumps blood. The key phrase really is that the foundations are being destroyed. That's where it comes to its head. This is all described as as a, a war with archers, but the point is the foundations are being destroyed. And that's a fairly rare word in the Hebrew language that's used here, and actually used with this meaning only in this place. But this is the meaning. The foundations are being destroyed. What holds things, well, holds it together? What undergirds everything? It's not that the wicked are putting IEDs under the foundations of David's house. 
It's rather that they're aiming at the upright in heart. This is a spiritual battle. It's the wicked against the righteous. And the foundations refers to the order of society. It's the things that the righteous can depend upon. And when they're destroyed, it seems as though there's nothing the righteous can do. So the established institutions, their order of right and wrong, of good and evil, are being uprooted. What's right's being treated as wrong, because the righteous are right, but they're being treated like criminals. They're the targets. And what's good is treated as evil. Those who trust in the Lord are being singled out for death. And that's the real issue. When the foundations are being destroyed, nothing is dependable. So we might say, using a builder's analogy, if the foundations are being destroyed, it doesn't do any good to try and fix the broken windows because the ones you put in are going to break too. The whole building is going to topple. That's the sense here that the cynical are saying to David, the foundations of law and order of justice are being undermined. And... There's no place left for the upright in society. They should flee away. And so, this may speak of physical power being used against the righteous, persecution, torture, and death. But it's also moral power being turned against the righteous. Mental persecution. A financial assault, a judicial assault, emotional and spiritual power being pitted against the righteous. And so what can the righteous do? That's the question at the end of verse 3. And you'll recognize that as a rhetorical question. It demands the answer, nothing. What can the righteous do? Nothing. They can't do anything. And it's put in the form of a question to make it more Powerfully said. So the righteous are helpless in spite of all their righteousness and they should just flee to a mountain hideout and let the society destroy itself. And so these are then the cynical brethren who are speaking. They believe the worst. They do not see how you could overcome evil with good. Selfless acts cannot overcome selfishness. The selfishness of the wicked. They think that love cannot overcome hatred. In their view, when the foundations are being destroyed, the righteous are helpless. So these brethren care about righteousness, but they're pessimistic about the power of good over evil. They're not cynical in the strongest sense that they have contempt for what the righteous can do. But they're cynical in the sense that they strongly doubt that the righteous have any way of dealing with the situation except to flee away. And so, brothers and sisters, we may look around and we could look at Canadian society and some people have been tempted to say the same. It's, it's been a way of life for some Christians to flee away from a society where they feel they can no longer um, have the freedom they want. And is that a position we should take? Should we say, because human rights tribunals uh, will listen to complaints against those who call certain protected um, minority positions um, sinful activities or sinful positions, 
such as homosexuality? Should we then get out and start a commune and have our own little society? Well, no. The Lord Jesus said we're to be a salt and a light, so we can't do that. But Canada began with a Christian foundation. The moral foundations are being destroyed. Good and evil are being exchanged. We can ask then, what can the righteous do? And if they try something, if they get into the political arena and they stand up for true justice, they have to be so careful about how they use their words lest the media should jump on it and misinterpret it and misuse it against them. So if your Christianity is in any way public and not just a little private hobby of yours, it's a mark against you. We could give a number of examples. ARPA gives us some good examples every now and then. Now, does this mean that we are helpless? What about when we look at around at life in the church? Almost every church is like this. A certain number of people come to everything and a certain number of people are just on the fringes and not greatly involved. And sometimes that happens in the church that if one person becomes very zealous for the Lord and really gives themselves, uh, him or herself, to the cause of the Lord, then others are looking for fault. And it's because they feel challenged by the zeal of someone else and they don't want to be They don't want to look bad. Even Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind once. The church is a mix of the wheat and the tares. In that parable, meaning the good grain uh, is are the true believers and the tares of the the weeds are the hypocrites. They're, They're still in the church. Do we then try to find out who all the hypocrites are and then push them all out or flee away? Can we find a pure church on earth? No. What can the righteous do? They can do what the Lord says. Go where the Lord says your faith is to be strengthened through the preaching of the Gospel where the church is instituted with ordained officers, elders and deacons, and pastors. And the Lord says your faith will be tested even within the church. So don't be surprised by that. Even within the church. Also by cynical brethren. And we can also face these sorts of difficulties within our immediate families as well. Now, David faces these cynical questions and cynical brothers and sisters by getting right down to the foundation and saying, what can the righteous do? Is that true that they can't do anything? No, they can call upon and rely upon the God who keeps the foundations intact. And actually, the foundations cannot ultimately be destroyed because God can't be destroyed. And that's the solution relied upon by the faithful in the verses 4-7. to So you recall that the entire tone of the psalm was set in the first line. In Yahweh, I take refuge. I trust in Him. And so the advisors whom David has quoted do not have the influence they think they do. The entire psalm is actually a rebuke of them. In Yahweh I take refuge. How then can you say to me, how can you say such things to those who trust in the Lord? How can you go on 
telling them that the foundations are being destroyed. How can you recommend that they flee quietly, quickly, and far? Don't say such things for, and this is what the verses 4-7 to amount to, for the foundations are not being destroyed. David's message in the verses 4-7 to is that the foundations are still in place and they'll always be in place. They cannot be destroyed. Look at verse 4. Yahweh is in His holy temple. So there He is in His temple up there. It's holy, so He's untouched by sin. Always righteous, always good. And the second part of verse 4, Yahweh is on His heavenly throne. That means He's up there ruling, powerful, administering justice, and no one can remove Him from His throne. He's not weakened. And the third part of verse 4, He observes the sons of men, His eyes examine them. So there's God looking at the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve and His eyes are probing. He can focus in. He can go right in and look in their souls and He can scrutinize. He can test. He can proof them. He can probe them. And He sees whether or not their souls are seeking to imitate His soul. Do they love the righteous as He does? Do they hate wickedness as He does? Look at verse 5. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence His soul hates. Notice the mention of God's soul. David didn't have to say that. David could have just said, those who do violence God hates. But he says God's soul hates. He's going to the very core of God, as it were. And he's saying that the very soul of God determines the foundations of the world. What God's soul loves shall be eternally loved, and what God's soul hates shall be eternally hated and cursed. And notice the contrasting parallel statements here. God's soul hates the wicked. Those who love violence, the wicked and those who love violence, the soul hates. But on the other hand, what does he do with the righteous? He examines the righteous. And the idea of examining the righteous here is not that God is watching each one of the righteous and just waiting for you to slip up. And He's going to catch you when you slip up. No, that's not the idea. Because the contrast is that He hates the wicked and those who do violence. And therefore, the examination of the righteous is an examination in love. There's a contrast here between how God approaches the righteous, examining them, and how He approaches the wicked, hating them. And the idea is then that God examines the righteous with the purpose of improving them, of testing them, refining them, and making them better. And so God examines His elect children to make them better, to improve their faith. And brothers and sisters, isn't that exactly what the Lord is doing through the cynical brethren in this very psalm? He's testing David. He's creating the opportunity where David can make the choice to join them and diminish his trust in the Lord, or he can stand against them, even if it's all his, all the people around him, he can stand against them and become more steadfast in faith and then move them back to faith in the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, we then ask the question, are the foundations being destroyed? 
Are they actually being destroyed? Are they being undermined? Are they being removed and taken out of place? Or is this simply the point of view of the cynical brethren? You see, there is an eternal foundation of right and wrong, of good and evil, built into the world. It reflects the very heart of God, the very nature of God, the very soul of God. And we can rely upon this foundation with 100% certainty that God is upholding it and will uphold it forever. He's on His throne. He observes. He tests. He's holy. And so right is always right. And wrong is eternally wrong. And that's because God's law stands forever. It belongs to the very creation of the universe that God decided things should be a certain way. Good is always good, and evil is eternally evil. And this is because God's law fits what He has made, and those who do right will bring about good both now and forever. Doing right brings about good because what is right is designed to lead to human flourishing. It's designed to lead to the good life. The good supports, sustains, and improves life. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Now, evil always brings destruction. That's why it's evil. For it destroys the good things God has made. It hurts life and destroys it. And God will always make things work out that way, even if in the short term it doesn't seem like it. God upholds this structure, and so the foundations cannot ultimately be destroyed. The eternal existence of heaven and hell will always demonstrate that these foundations are rooted in God Himself, and they reflect His perfections. Verse 6, On the wicked... He will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. See, David knows that in this life, the wicked are often rich, as they'd be described in the Old Testament. They're fat and sleek because they have lots of money to feed themselves and have servants do all the menial work. So they're fat and they're sleek. But David will not allow himself to be tricked by appearances. The eternal foundations of the world are exactly as God has revealed, and on these David will build his confidence for doing what is right. So in the end, brothers and sisters, we have to say that David is teaching us, the Holy Spirit is teaching us, that the foundations are not being destroyed. And that's what we have to believe today, too. Society, in one sense, may destroy itself, and so... The Roman Empire falls and another one takes its place. And the United States of America starts to fall. Another may take its place. This is the way it goes. Why does another take its place? Well, these eternal foundations of law and order reassert themselves and people bump up against reality that you can only push against contrarily for so long. And then society falls apart. When people pervert the truth, then, brothers and sisters, don't grow cynical that there's nothing that the righteous can do. Whether it's in society, whether it's in the church, whether it's in your family, 
the righteous can do much. Don't be cynical. They can pray. And that's not just a case of, oh, well, there's nothing else we can do, so we, at least we can pray. No, prayer is more powerful than all things. And you, through prayer, have access to the God who sits on His throne. The righteous can trust in the Lord and be absolutely confident of His blessing. You should be able to be confident of the Lord's blessing in Christ. The righteous can do what is right without ever fleeing from their moral obligations and their spiritual calling to represent the Lord. They can be a community of love. They can advocate justice for the poor and the weak. They can confront the wicked with the judgment of Almighty God. They can help the poor and abandoned of this world with clothing, food, shelter, and above all, with the Gospel. And we can do all this in absolute confidence that we are acting in agreement with the foundations of the world established by God. That's remarkable. And so, brothers and sisters, finally then, if we, as a community of Christians, know the Lord Jesus Christ, then should we ever need to say, ah, but what can the righteous do and hang our shoulders and hang our heads like there's nothing we can do? Because the foundations are being destroyed? No, brothers and sisters, if ever the foundations were being destroyed, it was in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. If ever everything was being turned upside down, it was when the devil came against the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the people around the Lord Jesus finally said, what can that righteous man do? And he died and they said, now all his good work is for nothing. And Satan gloated, I have destroyed the very foundations and my my lot will no longer be fiery coals and burning sulfur and a scorching wind. I have destroyed the very author of life. Now death will reign and I will reign. And brothers and sisters, in doing that very thing, Satan sealed his own doom. The righteous Lord Jesus Christ humbly submitted to this mockery of justice without protest. He let the wicked one have his way. The Christ knew that the very soul of God upholds the foundations of the world. And Satan was putting a holy, righteous, just, innocent, selfless, perfect, loving man to death. And all that while he did that, the foundations remained rooted in the soul of God and the Lord Jesus Christ put His hope in the very heart of God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Death could not hold Him. Evil could not finally overcome Him. The foundations could not be destroyed. He rose. He lives. He rules. He's crowned. The foundations are still in place. More than that, brothers and sisters, those foundations are they are firmly nailed in place 
Nothing could possibly move them if anything ever could have before. Now there's this new legal foundation in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for a whole new creation. Because God's justice was acknowledged and satisfied. And the heart of God delighted in His Son. So brothers and sisters, that's ultimately why you should be confident. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then all is well with your soul. But not only that, all will be well with the Lord, with His new creation, with justice and righteousness. All will be well. The resurrection is the reassertion of right and wrong, good and evil, right-side-up reality. Your refuge, your strength, your protection, your assurance of reward is in Jesus Christ. And so therefore, with faith in Him on His heavenly throne, you can do everything. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13 And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. 1 John 5, verse 4 And so we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Hebrews 10.39 Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.